And if you'll remain standing, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. As we listen, as the Lord speaks his word, Romans 1, uh, chapters, uh, verses 16 through 32, reading out of the English Standard Version, hear the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Well, God, we come now, as always, to this time in the service where we open the scriptures with the firm conviction that you have spoken in them and that you, through them, will speak to us. Each one here comes with uh, issues on our hearts, thoughts and beliefs in our minds, habits in our lives, Lord, that need you to speak a clear word of truth to. And so, Lord, knowing all that we need to hear, would you indeed speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people 
for your glory and our good always. Lord, move me out of the way and use my voice to cause your voice to be heard. In Christ's name, amen. And you may be seated. Well, I titled this message, Recovering the Gospel, which may uh, seem like a little uh, odd title for those who think they have possession of the gospel or have a hold of the gospel or what have you. Um, But there's a reason why I mentioned that. There's a sense in which we always need to be guarding, protecting, and even recovering the gospel because uh, left to itself and left to ourselves, we will obscure the gospel. We will make unclear what God has made clear. It is our habit. It is our natural tendency. We don't have to have any training or practice or that is just our tendency. And so we, we must always be working to recover it. Um, but I mention it particularly on this occasion as we're celebrating and commemorating the Reformation. And we might do well to begin with the reminder that it was a Protestant Reformation, not a Protestant Revolution. The Reformers did not set out uh, to cause revolution. They set out to bring about Reformation. Reformers typically want to correct the errors and cleanse the corruptions that have entered an institution or a system or an organization or something like that. Revolutionaries want to dismantle the systems and the structures altogether and put something new in its place, often something that's never been tried before. That's kind of the nature of revolutionaries. Revolutionaries, in a manner of speaking, want to tear the old house down and build something entirely different in its place, maybe even not a house at all. The reformer wants to go into that old house and strip off that ugly wallpaper, uh, pull up the carpet that's covering the beautiful original hardwood floors. Why would anybody do that? But strip it up, replace some of what's been damaged, refinish, restore the beauty of what was originally there. Recover something of its intended uh, beauty and purpose. Well, the Reformation... Uh, was reformation in that sense, a recovery. It was a stripping away of what had been corrupted in the church and a recovery primarily of the gospel. The reason why grace alone, faith alone, in Christ alone, according to scripture alone, was such the battle cry of the reformation was because so much had been added that it obscured altogether grace and faith and Christ and the authority of scripture. It was a recovery of the gospel. And Martin Luther's own discovery of the true gospel came as he was teaching through the book of Romans and got to the first couple of verses of this passage that we're reading this morning. As a matter of fact, I should have said, my sermon really comes from verses 16 through 16 and 17. Um, I wanted to provide the others for sort of context that is helpful as we unpack just those two verses. But that's where Martin Luther's discovery of the gospel came as he was teaching, particularly verse 17. 
of Romans chapter 1. And in every generation of the church, as I alluded to earlier, there is a need to guard the gospel, uh, preserve the gospel, and even recover aspects of the gospel because we are always covering it, veiling it with other things that we have added to. It is always at risk of slipping out of our grasp. And so uh, we need to be recovering the gospel, securing our grip on the good news, in three ways, I would say, from these two verses right now. Really, just, just looking at the three statements that Paul uh, makes, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation. And it is the righteousness. in it, the righteousness of God is revealed. And so from those three statements, I want to uh, just uh, sort of look at the renewing our confidence, number one, in the gospel, Number two, the power of the gospel, our sense of the power of the gospel. And number three, the righteousness of the, of the gospel. So that's where we're going this morning. First, looking just at our confidence in the gospel. Paul says there, I am not ashamed of the gospel. And of course, ashamed typically means feeling shame or embarrassment about something. There are all kinds of things we've done that we're ashamed of. There were things we did when we were little we weren't ashamed of till our parents told us we ought to be ashamed of ourselves or, what, or whatever. In fact, in some cases, we ended up uh, clothed with shame that it took us years to get off of ourselves because of stuff that was heaped on us. But that's usually kind of the connotation of the word shame. But even more significant uh, than that is if the shame or embarrassment prevents somebody from proclaiming or defending the gospel. In other words, to be ashamed of the gospel matters most if that shame prevents somebody, silences somebody, prevents them from sharing it or defending it. But either way, the questions that arise, I think when we read that, is why might Paul even possibly be ashamed? We've lived in a culture that um, has, where, where Christianity for for decades and even centuries so defined the world we live in that we might not think of any uh, such notion as being ashamed of the gospel. Why might Paul even possibly be ashamed of the gospel? In other words, why is that something he even needs to say? And why would any Christian today be ashamed of the gospel? Well, we get some insight, at least into Paul's thinking, from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. And he says some similar things as he's opening that letter to uh, the Corinthians, but in verses in verse 18 and the verses 22 through 25, he says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. It's foolishness to those who are perishing, to those who are being saved, it's the power of God. Verse 22 and following, he says, For Jews demand a sign, uh, Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. That, by the way, that last verse, 1 Corinthians 1.25, some might want to go highlight that and even memorize that. The, the, in, in the days to come, in the years to come in our country, you might need that in your uh, tool belt and in your holster, so to speak, to remember 
that the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But in the Greek culture, this idea of a crucified Savior was foolishness. The idea that you're a hero was mocked and shamed, tortured and executed without even putting up a fight. That was just utterly foolish to the Gentile person. And Paul understood that, that that's the culture that he's preaching to. And in our contemporary setting, even, the idea that God would grant forgiveness to you on the basis of what somebody else did. That's just foolishness to some people. That is mocked and ridiculed. Maybe you've heard that. I mean, that is one of the things that some people will just, uh, just mock about the gospel, about Christianity. The idea that um, somebody else could pay the penalty for your mistakes. What a cop-out, they might say. It's foolishness to them. But even more today than that, why might uh, Christians in our contemporary world be ashamed of the gospel or silenced? It is partly because the gospel's call uh, to repentance from sin. That is part of what we're called out of darkness and into light. Out of death and into life but out of our sin and into a life of repentance and faith. And that call to repentance from sin is offensive to a culture who doesn't even want their sin put in the category of being sin. The very notion of sin is is just offensive to the modern ears. Maybe you've observed that. Maybe you've experienced that. Just unacceptable, especially in our day, if you include sexual sin in the category of sin. How dare you say that that is sin? I've I've been whipped by that cord personally. That's the the culture we live in. And so uh, that that has the, the, the possibility, the potential of silencing uh, the, the Christian to be ashamed of the gospel in that respect. So there's not only mockery of the gospel, but even outright hostility toward it, and that hostility is increasing. We can feel the temperature rising on that because the world is becoming diametrically opposed to God and to the truth of God. And that is in the nature of man. Again, here's the thing we don't realize. We have lived under the common grace of God for so long that we think it's just normal human existence, and it is not. It is the grace of God, the goodness we have experienced in the world we've lived in, in the country we've lived in, for all of our lives and even for generations past. But that is not the default condition of humanity. What's closer to the default condition of humanity is referred to in verses 18 and following of Romans 1. In verses 18 through 21, it really describes man's path to idolatry. That's really what he's getting at. But the first characteristic it mentions of that, if you noticed it, the first characteristic it mentions of a society that rejects God is that they suppress the truth that is plainly revealed in creation. They suppress the truth and they exchange the truth for a lie. 
And I would suggest an, an illustration of that in our common day. There's no really more vivid example of that, I would say, in our lifetime than the current confusion that's been created over the issue of gender identity. Now, I realize that is a can of worms I have just opened, and I'm going to open it and play in it for just a minute. I, don't, I, I shouldn't say play in it, but I'm not, I, I'm not, we don't have time to delve too deeply in that. But I want, to, I, I want to speak to that because it is an illustration of the tendency of, of mankind. When a society rejects God, it will suppress the truth and exchange the truth for a lie. A truth that is plainly seen in creation. So I realize the hypersensitivity of the subject. Let me say that, number one. The, the second thing I should say is um, there are people, real individuals, image bearers of God, who have a real issue with their gender identity. For us to, for us to sort of adopt the, the mocking, condescending rhetoric of our culture that is just the way we talk to one another and to speak about people in that way uh, is really... As, as, as thoroughly unchristian uh, as lots of other things that, that we could do that are unchristian. We ought to be, in other words, compassionate, um, loving, patient, and forbearing toward um, individuals who have that struggle. But it goes beyond that in our day, right, where the whole culture is being uh, required to embrace the deception of that, to go along with a lie, to the point, to the point that we go as far as saying things like men can have babies, and and maybe you've heard this. Uh, you're just as well off if you haven't, but um, <laughs> but maybe you've heard because the the, ra the rationale goes like this: it's if if a woman. Um, identifies as a man. And again, I, I want to I underscore the fact that there are people that is really their experience as, as genuinely as they would say about anything that inside of themselves, uh, what they perceive about themselves is that they're the opposite gender of what their biology tells them, okay? So, but if that woman identifies as a man, uh, now the, 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 rule of, uh, the rule of the road is she is a man. And uh, we, you got to call her a man. And by the way, she is a he. So, so now she is him, a man. And even though all of the biology is, she's still got all the woman body parts, that, the, that, that everybody around has to say, that's a man. And so, therefore, a man can get pregnant and have babies. That's that's the word on the street, so to speak. Now, again, I realize I would have been, in, in, by many measures, I'd be better off just leaving that alone for today and not open that particular Pandora's box. But my point is there is no better illustration in your lifetime and mine of the willingness of a culture to suppress the truth, truth that is plainly revealed, and everybody knows it. Everybody knows it. But to suppress the truth and exchange the truth for a lie and demand that everybody else go along with the lie. That is the first characteristic 
of, uh, that, that Paul mentions of a culture that rejects God. Suppressing the truth, exchanging the truth for a lie. And my, again, my point in even going there today is simply to say, we're living in a day where people suppress the truth and exchange it for a lie and try to silence and shame those who disagree. And I should say, by the way, I mean, th this, this issue touches um, us in a personal way as it does many here, by the way. I am not, that is not lost on me. There are people here who are touched personally by uh, loved ones and friends and other people um, who, who this issue becomes a very real issue. That's not lost on me at all. But the point is, let God be true and every man a liar. That's when, in fact, he goes on to say in Romans 3, what he begins in verse 18 here is, is, a, is a whole passage through chapter 3 where essentially he is making the point that all have sinned. We know that verse. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He begins it right here by saying whether Jew or Greek, whatever your background, whatever your knowledge, all have sinned. That's the point he makes up through chapter 3. And he says, let God be true and every man a liar. And so in the setting we live in, where there is not only the, the explicit willingness to suppress the truth, but the insistence that you suppress it too, we have to resolve, once again, we will not be ashamed of the gospel. And why? Well, because, he says, it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes the Jew first, and also to the Greek. We need to renew our sense of the power of the gospel. And Paul was certainly someone who knew what it meant to be saved by the power of the gospel. You remember the story of his conversion. He was actively persecuting the church on his way to drag Christians to jail and even potentially to their death. And, and the power of God met him on the road to Damascus and claimed him. You talk about somebody who knew what it meant to be delivered out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of his dear son, out of darkness and into his marvelous light. He was blinded by that light on that road, saved in a dramatic, radical way by the power of the gospel. He knew that, and we need to recover a sense of that because there are all kinds of ways that Christians ought to live in response to the gospel, um, but that themselves, if we're not careful, again, if we don't guard it, those, other, those responses will become substitutes for the gospel. I'm talking about things like, for example, moralism, where in response to the gospel, we, uh, we repent of our sins, we pursue holiness, being, being sanctified by the Holy Spirit of God, and that before long, the little measures of holiness uh, themselves become substitutes for the gospel. So the Christian life becomes about do this, don't do that. Wear this, don't wear that. Have your hair cut in a certain way, not that way. Don't go to this movie or any movies for that matter. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't chew, don't go with girls that do. You know, to, uh, uh, it, be, it becomes just a sort of a lifestyle of moralism. And, and that 
Uh, again, there's all, all kinds of ways in which moral living is an appropriate response to the gospel. It is a lousy substitute for the gospel. It is a lousy substitute for the gospel. It'll send you to hell as fast as any other uh, just w- w- wretched life will. And so uh, moralism would be one. Uh, again, a response um, that sort of works its way out in the way of uh, social causes. These would be, this would be a good, worthwhile response to the gospel that we become concerned about and, 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 and show care for the poor, feeding the hungry, uh, clothing the needy, giving shelter to the homeless, building hospitals, and so on. Like all of those things are good responses, uh, natural, if you will, if you will, responses to one who's been transformed by the gospel. But more time, uh, more times than one, more times than we could probably count. Those have become substitutes for the gospel in the life of the church. That being Christian simply means and is marked by doing those things. And, 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 and so that's my point to say um, we need to, we, we don't have to try in order for the gospel to devolve into being some cheap substitute for it. And we've lost our sense of the power of the gospel. None of those things, moralism, social causes, or any of those others that we might imagine has the power to save us. It's the gospel that calls us from death to life. When we were dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2 says, he made us alive together with Christ. The picture is we were spiritually what Lazarus was physically. Dead and laying in a tomb, wrapped in grave clothes, and Jesus says, Lazarus, John, Betty, Joe, Stacy, come forth. The call of the gospel from death to life. It has the power to raise the dead spiritually. 2 Timothy 1.10 says, Jesus abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. He abolished death and brought immortality, life and immortality to light through the gospel. The gospel has the power to save us. And save us from what? Well, again, this is part of the reason I wanted the context of verses 18 through 32. Because verse 18 says, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and the righteousness of men. He says in verse 17, In the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed... The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against unrighteousness. In other words, the gospel is the power of God to save us from the wrath of God. That's another thing you'll not hear a whole lot in the contemporary church. People are a little uncomfortable talking about the wrath of God. The Bible's not uncomfortable about it at all. That's one of the benefits of just... Preaching through the Bible, you take what comes as it comes, right? And there it is. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And as I said, the rest of chapter 1 and really all through chapter 3 describes the universal condition of mankind as people who reject God. And we should underscore the fact that it is universal. 
If you weren't reading along carefully, you might want to look again down at verses 29 and th through 31 because your sin and mine are included in that list. We might get focused on verses in between to talk about somebody else's sin. But you can bet yours and mine are named somewhere in verses 29 through 31 and probably more than one of them. Right? I mean, let, let, me, let, me, uh, let me see if I can find a list just to help you. You know, unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips. Gossips. <laughs> slanderers. Haters of God. Insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents. Foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. More than one of those has got our name by it. It is, it is a declaration of the universal sinfulness of, of mankind and the universal subjection of all men to the wrath of God, which is stored up against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And he says there, we are full of every kind of evil. Full to the brim of all manner of evil. All the different kinds you could think of. That's why he has a long list, even though not an exhaustive list. It's a universal condition of mankind, subject to the wrath of God. But the gospel is the power of God to save, the power of God to save us from the wrath of God. And we need to renew our sense of the power of the gospel. Not the power of our persuasion, not the power of our arguments, not how slick we can be in one way or another. The power of the gospel to awaken men and women from death to life. And then thirdly, we need to renew our sense of the righteousness in the gospel. He says this in verse 17. And this is the statement that stopped Martin Luther in his tracks. That in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. From faith for faith. As I think the NIV says, beginning and ending in faith. All about faith. All by faith. The righteousness of God is revealed. Uh, Luther wrestled with this for a long time. For some length of time, he regarded the righteousness of God as a bad thing. Luther had become a monk at around the age of 18, and he threw himself into it. Like, he really endeavored to be a good monk. Like, he was all in. He tried to live a righteous life, and the more he tried, the more he realized he was unrighteous. He was just absolutely beset by a sense of his sin. He would go to his confessor. He couldn't find any relief from his confession. In fact, his confessor was the one who was like, man, you're a little over the top with this, Martin. And, uh, and he's the one who encouraged him to, to, to throw himself into study and teaching. And it was through teaching Psalms and Romans that he actually uh, heard the gospel and was saved. But he wrestled with this. The, the idea of the righteousness of God didn't bring adoration for God to his mind. It, br it brought hatred of God. 
Because they thought of the righteousness of God being the ground by which he would judge unrighteous men. And he knew he was unrighteous. But then he came to understand what was meant by the statement in verse 17. That, the, that in the gospel, the righteousness of God was revealed. Because in the gospel, the sinner receives good news that Christ's righteousness is credited to him. The righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel. Not righteousness that supplements or augments whatever righteousness you or I have. But the righteousness of Christ alone that is what, what Luther called an alien righteousness. That it was righteousness outside of ourselves. Nothing at all in ourselves. That that righteousness is credited to us. We are counted as righteous. Not made righteous. Just counted as righteous. By the righteousness of Jesus. It's like receiving a message. Okay, think of the gospel coming as a message of good news, which it is, but that message coming in an envelope, and you open the envelope, and there is a gift certificate. And it is the righteousness of God. Like this gift certificate that gives you, in this message of good news, access to God. That it's just, it's just revealed in the gospel. Just given entirely to you, from outside of you. The righteousness of God uh, is revealed in that way. And, and, and the message is that we simply present that gift to God. He regards us as righteous. That is good news. I'm telling you what, we all ought to meditate on that as long as Martin Luther did to really be stirred by that. That was what changed him. He started out with a modest uh, uh, agenda to debate 95 theses. By the time he stood on trial in 1521 at the Diet of Worms, he could not recant. That's what Steve mentioned in the sermon uh, a few weeks ago. There's a really good chance he said that with some humility and reservation. That he wasn't just turning red in the face and defiant or whatever. But he believed it so deeply he could not recant. He understood the truth of the gospel. The beautiful truth that the righteousness of God was given to him. I thought of as I was, as I was sort of thinking of this picture of, of opening a message and receiving that sort of gift. I thought about uh, some years ago, the one family trip that we took years ago to uh, Disney World. The first day, we went to Animal Kingdom. And when we walked in, it was Animal Kingdom, right? That's what it's called, okay. Uh, Animal Kingdom. When we walked in the gate, we were greeted by a young woman uh, who's an employee who called out to us, got our attention, and then gave every member of our family a magic pass. I don't know if you know what a magic pass is. This is a thing so wonderful, you only whisper about it. You only, not everybody gets this, and you only get it once in a lifetime. It's sort of a, they have it, or used to have at least at Disney World, a fast pass. You could go and get a pass that would, um, you'd be able to go to certain attractions or rides and go to the front of the line. 
but you could only get one or two of them at a time, and it would usually be the one that's across the other side of the park, and um, so you'd have to go on a long walk to get in the front of the line, you know, it was that sort of thing. Um, but they did that in order to sort of manage the crowds and the length of line and that kind of thing. A magic pass sent you to the front of the line at every ride and every attraction in Animal Kingdom. Now, uh, we could have said, this isn't real. This can't be real. Who is she anyway? She's not, I mean, she's not Snow White. She's not Minnie Mouse. She's like nobody with any authority. We could have said, you know, that's just not fair. For us to get to go to the front of the line, we ought to have to stand in line uh, like everybody else. We want to know when we get to the front of the line, we've earned our place in the front of the line. Now, we could have said that. We didn't say that. <laughs> we said, thank you. Oh, my gosh. Are you serious? Are you serious? And so we, we've spent the day, you know, filled with gratitude and joy and a real, a real sort of rest about the way we went through the day. We didn't have to labor over thinking about which rides are we going to do and which ones are we going to decide not to do because we can't do them all because we're going to spend a lot of the day standing in line. None of that. We, we didn't have to do any of that. It was a total place of rest and joy and peace and gratitude. And we walked around Animal Kingdom like we were kings of the jungle. But not with any sense of haughtiness, right? Not any sense of pride. We would flash our past before anybody else. It was just we were given freely access that we could not even imagine getting. And that, by the way, you cannot buy anywhere. Just revealed to us in the call from this uh, otherwise unknown woman who worked at Disney World and revealed to us the indescribably good gift of access we couldn't purchase for ourselves. Well, the, the message of the gospel comes with a gift of righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus, all the ways you, you might have uh, tried striving to be righteous, confessing your sin, and all the layers you pull back, you realize there's more beneath the surface than you ever knew before. It's like opening yourself up for surgery and just, and just closing it back up because you're like, oh my gosh, there's too much in there. I don't even know what to do with it. But Jesus paid it all. Jesus is the one sinless man who lived a sinless life, paid a penalty on our behalf that we owed but couldn't pay. And he was able to pay even though he didn't know it. And that righteousness and the, and the power over death and the, and, and the securing of life and immortality is all ours in the gospel. The righteousness of God revealed to you and me. And we just have to re receive it by faith, knowing 
knowing that when that, when that offer goes out to the world, as it is supposed to go, right, and be freely offered to all the world, that some will say, that can't be true. That's not real. Who are you? Who's Jesus? I mean, just some, I mean, yeah, he was a great, great man, but there are lots of great men. That can't be true. Or others who say, that's not fair. I heard a testimony of this fact uh, recently. Somebody who could not believe the gospel, he ended up finally believing the gospel uh, late in life. After a diagnosis with cancer, he came to know the Lord, but he had a hard time believing the gospel because he said, I've lived all my life for myself. I've sinned and I've known I've sinned, and that's not fair. That wouldn't be fair for me to get to, to be forgiven, you know, this late in life. Some people will respond that way. But those who simply say, thank you, Lord. Oh, my goodness. Thank you. This is more wonderful than I could imagine. It's far more uh, valuable than anything I could have paid for or purchased. But thank you, Lord, and I believe it. Those who respond that way uh, will enter into an eternity full of fullness of joy, fullness of peace, and a rest from our labors. Let's pray together. Well, God, thank you for the free gift that you've given us in the person of Jesus, in what he did for us, in what he accomplished through his life, death, and resurrection, and the righteousness, the righteousness that we know we can't drum up, we can't manufacture, we can't find within ourselves. We thank you, Lord, for the indescribably good gift that his righteousness is to us. That it's revealed to us in the message of good news. And Lord, I pray that there would be in the hearts of everyone here a renewal of our, of our confidence in the gospel, of our sense of the power of the gospel, and of our deep gratitude and appreciation for the righteousness that's revealed to us in the gospel. Lord, knowing there may be some here today who have never answered that call for the first time, Lord, would you awaken them from spiritual death, raise them to life, bring them out of darkness and into light by the call, the sweet, sweet call of your spirit. Lord, have your way, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.